Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting June 12, 2015, we'll be speaking with South African investigative reporter Khadija Sharif about her recent World Policy Journal blog posts on persistence of the dirty diamond trade, easy virtue, and exposing South Africa's Lettergate scandal. We'll also point out top stories in the WPJ spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, the U.S. may send hundreds of American military personnel to Iraq to speed up training of Iraqi forces who are fighting the so-called Islamic State. The proposal would involve the establishment of a new American base in Anbar province, but would not include the riskier option of placing Americans in the field with Iraqi combat units to help call in more precise airstrikes on ISIS forces. The U.S. proposal comes amid concern here in Washington that Iraqi forces are doing a poor job against ISIS, which has taken broad swaths of Iraq and neighboring Syria in recent months. There are currently some 3,000 U.S. troops in Iraq now, including about 650 trainers. They remain on fortified bases and do not go out on missions with Iraqi combat forces. President Obama, meantime, is back from the G7 summit in Germany. Containing Russia was a big topic. Obama, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and others all agree that sanctions against Moscow will continue. Those sanctions linked to Russian actions in Ukraine. The U.S. and its NATO allies, meantime, have a mutual defense pledge, of course. But just how solid is that pledge? A survey out this week says at least half of Germans... French and Italians say their country should not use military force to defend a NATO ally if attacked by Russia. That survey conducted by the Pew Research Center. The findings could be particularly alarming to three NATO members, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, all of whom are former Soviet republics. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. It's internally flawless, which means there are no imperfections inside the stone. And it is something called a type 2A diamond, which means there's no nitrogen. And without the nitrogen, it's like a limpid pool of ice water. Very transparent. As perfect in its own way as the gem auctioned at Sotheby's in New York this spring for just over $22 million, Maybe the system of financial deception and manipulation long used in South Africa by dominant diamond dealer De Beers, which originally mined the stone there. By contrast, critics say, the system for minimizing or totally avoiding taxes and duties on the natural treasures De Beers exports may be as far from transparent as financial power and politics can make it. This murky reality was dramatized by the scandal known as Lettergate, named for the apartheid-era document De Beers claimed gave it an official tax exemption just before South Africa's first democratic election. Kept secret for more than eight years, it was finally exposed as ambiguous at best, improper or fraudulent at worst. And to many, it typifies the power of rich companies to corrupt governance in South Africa. 
Khadija Sharif, a senior researcher for the African Network of Centers for Investigative Reporting, ANCIR, wrote about the system and the scandal in two recent posts on the World Policy Journal blog, Easy Virtue and Exposing South Africa's Lettergate Scandal. I spoke with her about both recently for this podcast. Khadija Sharif, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you so much for having me. What kind of taxes did De Beers claim exemption from? Taxes and royalties are really the only form of direct benefit that a country or a jurisdiction receives from their mineral resources, aside from jobs, which is very limited in and of itself. So ironically, South Africa was the only major mining country on the African continent not to have a royalty system until 2010, when the Mineral and Petroleum uh, Resource Royalty Act was implemented. This is a, a huge scandal in and of itself because one would expect South Africa to have the system in place. So a, royal, a sliding scale royalty system was then implemented, which is calculated against a company's declared profits. So the net average from royalties post-2010 was just 1.1% of sales. So in 2011, South Africa exports, for example, about $1.3 billion in diamonds, but the country nets just $11 million in royalties. And De Beers was one of the companies that actually put a lot of pressure on the government. It's the dominant diamond player, um, and they pressured the government into changing the proposed royalty structures. So in Namibia, there, there is a flat royalty rate of about 10%. In South Africa, ours is averaged at 1.1% of scales, which is quite shocking. Um, the second, uh, and, and the, the system that I focused on was taxes, which is specifically import-export. And we found that the 15% export tax on diamonds was completely avoided, first through the scandal that you mentioned. Uh, De Beers claimed they had a letter from the apartheid diamond board, and second through the undervaluation of exported diamonds, um, which then allows for the company to actually set its own tax rate. And what was shocking here is that the government's reports would just show blank spaces when it was supposed to reflect the, the business of the diamond industry. And this is because De Beers used a formula that they did not share with the government and also because the government was not allowed by law to disclose any information about the diamond industry. So you could look into government diamond reports and see gold and other minerals, but with diamonds, it was just a blank space. One has to ask who is actually in charge here when it comes to the industry. How much do you estimate that system benefited De Beers and cost South Africa's treasury over the years? Oh, gosh. Um, I think the first benefit... Uh, is that of policy and governing, because the role of the, the public sector or of the government was effectively removed into the private sector it was intended to regulate. So De Beers actually got to not only shape but control the system that was supposed to regulate them. And this allowed for a privatization of national uh, and public resources. And it's a problem across the board in South Africa. 40% um, of our national budget is spent on procurement, but the government actually lacks technical specification skills. So contracts, and in this case, valuation of diamonds, is then outsourced to the private sector. And it affects industry because, especially with diamonds, which are a monopoly, it creates very, very 
anti-competitive environments. But the financial losses were immense. Um, My colleague Sarah Bracking, uh, Professor Sarah Bracking, and I estimated about 2.8 billion in profit shifting during the past few years. So that's undervaluing the exported diamonds. Um, We also showed that there was a $4.6 billion stockpile that was shifted. And this was done in the early 1990s when the dollar was almost on, on par with the rand. And the tax, the export tax from that shifted stockpile in 1993 alone was $135 million. So overall, the sum ranges in the billions. And if we include the freebies on royalties, the the sum goes even higher. It's just a shocking amount. What finally led to exposure of the letter in Lettergate? And what are the problems immediately apparent with that document? So the, the parliamentary records show that the issue was raised from 1999, and this is thanks to Temba Gordi, uh, who headed the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, and others like uh, the ANC's Pierre Gerber. So we see that there were individual and, and pockets of resistance and, and, and uh, pockets that, that were fighting for public justice. So there are good people in government, but they were located in a structure that institutionalizes incapacity and corruption, and one often leads to the other. So the overall effect of, of illicit activity becomes systemic. It becomes so normalized that it's actually hard to see that there is something very wrong happening here. And the letter... in in its own way laid bare that policy can create poverty and that the lack of information regarding diamonds and other industries and this outsourcing to the private sector of things that the government should be doing because they are appointed by the people. This is their political role. That lack of information becomes a weapon of control that almost inevitably leads to corruption. So had this not been listed on the parliamentary minutes site, just buried on the website, which in itself is alluvial, we would not have known what is happening. And this is just one company. So one has to ask, how often does this happen? And when will we as citizens get a chance to access this information that's so relevant to our political economy and to our democracy? Well, now that the document has become uh, available, what do you see in it and what what raises questions about its validity uh, this many years after being hidden? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Um, So I spoke with Tim Magordi. Some of that conversation was uh, off the record. But he did say that there was a lack of political will in government to actually take it further, because we, we know from the parliamentary minutes that the document itself was very suspect. There were different fonts. There were different signatures. There were missing names. De Beers refused to provide it. That the, the Diamond Board claimed that they didn't have a copy of it. And so we see that it's a very, very suspect letter that actually appears fraudulent or forged. And yet it's being accepted as a sound letter simply because De Beers says it is. And once that letter was raised in Parliament in mid-June 2007, when it was finally provided, the government then created something called a state diamond trader, where they used donated De Beers staff to value diamonds from companies like De Beers in order to provide them with exemptions. So we went from a ridiculous, absurd, forged document to a state of play where De Beers now donates staff that actually gives them an exemption. Um, So one has to wonder not just who's in charge, but how did the the multinationals get to tell government, get to regulate the whole diamond economy? Because clearly De Beers should have been asked to pay up reparations for the taxes that were avoided, but this wasn't the case. They were just allowed to get away. To continue on that line, the South African Revenue Service, SARS, continues to insist it has no authority to investigate this questionable document and the De Beers claims based on it because of a law, quote, 
imprecisely drawn. Uh, what's the loophole, and do you see it as an accident or engineered by De Beers and others? Uh, that's a very good uh, question. Um, at the time, uh, the South African Revenue Service said that the law was very imprecisely drawn because there were no royalty systems in place and the tax system was vague enough to allow for the beers to manipulate. The letter gave them a full exemption on paying those taxes, but SARS was correct in saying, you know, we really can't do anything because the law doesn't allow us to. And they later created the, the royalties regime that kicked in 2010. But um, at the time, uh, until very recently, until a few years ago, 2010, it was basically De Beers extracting, mining companies extracting resources from the ground and not actually paying the value of those resources, which is a, a shocking situation. Apart from the questionable claim for tax exemption, you write about, uh, as you mentioned, a rigged system for valuing diamonds as they are exported and imported to minimize taxes and duties uh, that giants like the beers do agree to pay. Explain how that valuation, shifting valuation system works in their favor. Um, so most uh, companies, particularly mining companies or those that deal in intellectual properties, so this would be uh, technology companies, and they conduct trades in goods and services within the, the multinational itself, not between different multinationals. So about 60% of global trade actually occurs within a company rather than between it. A company will extract gold from a country like Zambia or South Africa or diamonds or copper, and they will export it from that country to a subsidiary of their own in another country. So this can be a real or fake transaction. You often see products going through Mauritius when, in fact, it could not possibly go through Mauritius. Or it could be a corrupted transaction. So De Beers was artificially depreciating the value of the diamond that they exported from one subsidiary to another. But they were able to hide this because they used round-trip diamonds. So they would import um, a small volume of very high-value diamonds, bring it into the country, and then re-export it with the diamonds that they had actually extracted from the ground. So this created the impression of parity in the export of value, but actually it wasn't because they were using round-trip diamonds to artificially increase that value. And in this way, they were able to profit shift, and, and they were able to effectively set their own tax rate by saying, you can only tax me on $90 per carat because that's the value. Meanwhile, once the diamonds hit the other end, you see that the actual value um, is $120, $130 per carat. So they're profit shifting 30 or so. This is just an example. They're profit shifting a certain amount of dollars per carat just by playing around with the value. They told the government that we have 12,000 different categories of diamonds. And um, a De Beers director stated this under oath to a South African court. He said, the government should only audit the value that De Beers declares in the diamond price book. The government does not get to have any input on the value of diamonds. And this was um, admitted to us, and uh, the government diamond valuator continues to not have access to De Beers' formula that they use to value the diamonds that are exported. What explains the failure of the South African government to take tougher actions to get the revenue it's lost or is losing? That's a very uh, good question. Um, would with the transition to democracy, De Beers was part of Anglo-American, and by the 1980s, Anglo-American pretty much controlled 60 to 70 percent of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So that's all the diamonds, the gold, and a host of other uh, industries. So we see that Anglo-American was really a critical player. It was described by um, 
Minister Forster as bricks in the wall of the apartheid regime's continued existence. And we found that the transition happened because the multinationals were really getting a pariah reputation and they didn't want their business or their reputation to be affected. So they actually helped the transition because they found the cost of doing business with the apartheid regime um, too high based on South African uh, resistance from the people from the ANC as well as foreign resistance, the students, the movements in the U.S. and U.K. that were protesting against the apartheid regime. So we see companies are very strategic in, in the way that they operate. If they find the cost of doing business with the pariah government too high, they may turn around and support the liberation movement uh, that has the support of the people. But once we came into this transition, you see that De Beers is shifting a stockpile, the same thing that they did in Namibia where they had the monopoly as well. So it's they're not acting in good faith, and they are not not only deeply corrupt, but they don't really care about things like justice and democracy. They do what they do for money. So they come into the country, and they effectively blackball. They shift the stockpile. Later, they delist. And you see that this is really a company that's out to exploit as much as possible. And the government is either too weak and... and, and, and uh, just aside from weakness, you, you see that, that the ANC has institutionalized a system of black economic empowerment, whereby people politically connected to the government get a certain percentage of capital from the mega multinationals, from, from the white capital, and then they become a part of that same system. So BEE, which allegedly focuses on race, it says that now it's black economic empowerment, we're going to help the people. It really only helps certain kinds of people. It helps those who are politically connected. So again, the lines between private sector and public sector become very confusing because the BEE people are those that are politically connected within the ANC. They become a part of the same industry that should be tackled. And, and that's part of the problem. You say there's less oversight than some might expect because of a loophole in the famous Kimberley process certification scheme meant to keep any taint of violence from the diamond trade. Talk about that. So Dubai, for example, uh, Dubai I focus on a lot because it's a country that doesn't produce any diamonds, doesn't cut and polish any diamonds. They had a $5 million trade in diamonds before the KP certification uh, came to town. And once uh, the Kimberley process allowed for them to issue KP certificates, so it gave Dubai the green light. Dubai, which is a tax haven, their business went up to $39 billion, even though they produce cut and polish no diamonds. And this is because, as with Switzerland and other tax havens, producing countries or companies, and, and the whole Kimberley process is basically constructed around the integrity of the diamond exporter to say that he's doing what he says he's doing. They would export it through Dubai and get something called a mixed origin certificate. So it effectively undermines the actual purpose of the Kimberley process. It says that even though the Kimberley process is supposed to track the origin of diamonds, if you go through tax havens, you can re-export those same diamonds with a mixed origin certificate and eliminate the source. Of, of the diamonds. So from Dubai's own diamond statistics, which are very, very vague and broad, it shows the import and export volume, but not the country of import and export. We can see that in 2006, when Marangi diamonds in Zimbabwe came on tap, the diamond imports went up from 26 million carats to over 40 million carats, but the value of the diamond imports actually drastically decreased. So whoever was exporting it to Dubai did so at a very low cost. 
And if we calculate the, the cost of Zimbabwe's exports using a number of factors, we can see that Zimbabwe probably lost between 500 to $800 million every single year. And if we look at recent Dubai statistics, we can see that they imported for about $5 billion, then they re-export for about $7 billion. So there's $2 billion in profit that's being shifted. And we can't really tell who it is because Dubai, as a secrecy jurisdiction, provides a large number of legal and financial vehicles that give anonymity and give what they call discretion to their customers at a very low cost. For less than maybe $15,000, you can have a so-called company in Dubai. And when when we um, um, applied to them for the World Policy Journal article, they told us that we could also incorporate another layer in the British Virgin Islands at $2,500. So these secrecy jurisdictions work in complement with each other. They don't work as rivals. They will actually encourage you to use as many different tax havens as you can to create various layers of secrecy that no external government can actually crack. So it's, it's an extremely lethal and insidious process. And you say the problem is compounded by supposedly public-minded corporate philanthropy and some non-government organizations, including Transparency International. Talk about the role of what you call easy virtue in the world of tainted treasures. So I work with an organization that's 100% dependent on philanthropy, and we find that open society and, and other sources of uh, philanthropy are very generous and they don't impose any strings. But where it relates to governance, the EITI initiative, Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, or the KP process, we find that there's a, a deliberate constructing of governance systems that elide the root cause of the problem. So with EITI, you see, not only do mining companies contribute funding towards it, but it's limited at the national level, even though trade is transnational. And so it focuses only on what companies pay to the government, making the government the one that is required to disclose how much they steal. But it doesn't disclose what the companies should have paid to the government, where tax avoidance is in play, where profit shifting or artificial undervaluation of resources, those kinds of issues. So it's actually limiting and it provides a legitimacy um, to multinationals, to the key players involved, and that stand to benefit, including the tax havens. And so we see that with governance initiatives, there are deliberate loopholes that are embedded within the system. And philanthropy is, is directly financed by those that stand to benefit. So philanthropy provides capital that's depoliticized, that's presented as neutral, and that's devoid of its actual agenda where it relates to governance. And we've seen that particularly in the case of uh, resource uh, and minerals. Are there one or two realistic reforms, realistic in terms of being able to be politically put through, that you think might be most helpful in uh, better coping with the challenge of the diamond trade and its abuse? I think that it would be a critical reform to say that the Kimberley process for instance, should not provide KP certification to uh, jurisdictions or countries that are perceived as tax havens. If we exclude Switzerland, Dubai, and, um, for example, Portugal's Madeira, if we exclude the secrecy jurisdictions where no real economic activity takes place, then we can drastically curb the systemic gaps that are involved. So we can put a natural sanction on this kind of activity. Similarly, um, if governments start demanding that the actual multinational discloses all of the linked companies, the amount of uh, intercompany pricing, 
um, and, and just other details about various subsidiaries, including the names in different countries, we would see that this would also act as a natural sanction. Right now, multinationals are not the actual state of what they are. They have massive shadows, and these shadows are created by multiple subsidiaries in different uh, jurisdictions that provide legal and financial opacity. So a natural sanction would just be to say you cannot create a subsidiary in a country where no real uh, economic activity takes place and where it comes to transfer pricing or the transactions of goods and services between subsidiaries, this has to be fully disclosed. Uh, in a public way, then we would see that there's a drastic curb on all of these uh, strategies that they use to uh, facilitate illicit um, activities and, and capital flows. Khadija Sharif, thank you. Thank you very much. Khadija Sharif is a senior researcher for the African Network of Centers for Investigative Reporting, ANCIR. She wrote the Post's Easy Virtue and Exposing South Africa's Lettergate Scandal on the World Policy Journal blog. Featured in the spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and AIDS after the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we consider the refugee crisis in Europe and the European response with Sophie de Beauvais of the Fondation pour l'Innovation Politique in Paris. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman. Managing editor Jaffa Frederick. Online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>